Chris coming at you with another episode of the Task Talks podcast, the podcast where we talk about all the goings on in the world of school psychology and other random musings, especially in the world of education. We have another phenomenal guest today, but before we get to them, let me introduce my co-host, Brooke Roberts. How you doing, man? Hey, Chris, I'm super right now. I feel like your tone is slightly condescending. I don't know if that's no, 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 no. I've, I've got energy. It's been a while since we've done a podcast. I'm all I'm all in. I'm well, all in the, tonight. For the listeners, it's just been a week. But for us, it's been longer, right? It's true. Yeah, it's true. But we're it's recording true. at the end of the school no. year. It gets a little bit busy at the end of the school year. So we've been a little bit you know, with our actual job jobs and not our play jobs, which is this. So, but anything, anything going on in your world? Um, I've got some numbness in one of my fingers. It's oh. kind of tingling and that's been going on for a couple of months. And uh, I'm just waiting for a doctor's appointment to get in to figure out what's going on with my aging, uh, my aging corpse, corp, corpus. <laughs> Are we concerned about this? Is this something we need to talk about? I'm concerned about it. It, it my typing is off. Like my, uh, you know, I've, I've lost my, I've lost my cadence. So which, which hand is it? It's, it's the left hand. It's the, uh, it's the pinky. Uh, so, so those you know, A's hit, and Q's, you know, A, Z's, A, A, S, Q, Z, X. Yeah. Oh, that's rough, man. Hey, I apologize. So, Hope the best. <laughs> well, thank you. Thank no, you. but if we have to, we can get you a cool little prosthetic. So that'll be cool. Ooh, I hadn't even <laughs> thought about that. Yeah. All right. Enough about you and your issues, Brooke. Let's actually get to our guest today. <laughs> Sorry. So <laughs> we have Amy Gravino with us today. I'm going to read a little bio that she sent me. So Amy is an autism sexuality advocate and relationship coach in the Center for Adult Autism Services at Rutgers University. She is also the president of Ascot Consulting, which offers autism consulting, college coaching, and mentoring services for organizations, schools, individuals on the autism spectrum, and their families. Amy is an international speaker who has given TED Talks, that's awesome, spoken twice at the United Nations for World Autism Awareness Day, and presented worldwide to audiences on a variety of topics related to autism with a dedicated special focus and research on the subject of autism and sexuality. Ms. Gravino obtained her master's degree in applied behavior analysis from Caldwell University in 2010 and currently serves on the boards of directors of special, Specialist Turn? Specialist Turn? Is that a word? Specialist Turner. It's, Danish. it's <laughs> North, a Danish company. North America. Yes, she can, Inc. And the Golden Door International Film Festival of Jersey City, as well as the Scientific Advisory Board of Simons Foundational or Foundation Powering Autism Research, Spark. She's an award-winning writer whose work has been featured in Spectrum, the leading online news source for autism research, Reader's Digest, special education textbooks, and other outlets. Visit www.amygravino.com to learn more. Amy, how are you doing? Hi, Chris. I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for having me here today. No, 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 no. It is Brooks and I's pleasure to have you with us. I think Amy may be the most famous person that we've had on the podcast so far. Like, listen to that. She spoke to the UN. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, that's awesome. (laughs) Let me correct you, Brooke. I spoke to the UN twice. Yeah. (laughs) Damn it. Listen to the intros. (laughs) All right. So so we're going to get into other things later. Amy, tell us about that. How did that even come about? Uh, So the UN every year has been um, honoring and marking World Autism Awareness Day with uh, a a program and events that take place at the United Nations building in New York City. Um, I'm not sure exactly which year that began, but, but 2011 was when there was a panel um, that featured, uh, (laughs) <laughs> very illustrious names 
Um, it, it featured the uh, director of the mental health division of the World Health Organization. It featured the chief science officer of Autism Speaks at that time, as Autism Speaks was sponsoring this panel. Uh, and it featured the, the chair of an, an autism committee uh, in Bangladesh, uh, who was also the daughter of the prime minister. And then me. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so I was the one kind of self-advocate on the panel. I was invited to, to speak on the panel, you know, to kind of share my firsthand perspective. Um, and, and yeah, it was just an extraordinary thing. It was, you know, unlike anything I'd ever done before, certainly. Um, and there was a, a lovely kind of reception afterward at the permanent mission of Bangladesh to the UN in the city. And um, my parents got to come, you know, they got to see me and, and some other family members. And it was lovely. It was really just a, a wonderful, I, you know, it was word of mouth. That it, it kind of, what, what kind of led to it was that I was serving on the communications committee of Autism Speaks uh, at that time, which then became the awareness committee. So helping them with their campaigns, their PR campaigns and things like that. And so I think just, I was recommended, I guess, to to speak on, on this panel. And that was, that was really how it happened. And then when I spoke again in 2018, again, um, I, I believe, I, I knew the organizer lady by then, Jacqueline Aidenbaum, I, I think is her name. And I reached out to her and said, I would love to come back again. And I was, so I was invited again to, to be on this panel again with Sayyama Hossein, who was the same lady from Bangladesh from 2011 and, and another uh, individual. And then we, yeah, we all, you know, spoke about Gosh, if I can remember, <laughs> it seems like a long time ago, even though it was only four years ago. It was pre-pandemic, like, Amy, so yeah. everything is that long ago for that. Yeah, it's just, it's kind of blurry in my head, but it is on YouTube. So if you go to YouTube and look up Amy Gravino UN, it'll come right up there for you. That's phenomenal. Do you get nervous before you do that? Not really. I, oh, I'm sorry, Amy, I didn't speaking. know I was dealing with a big shot here. <laughs> well, no, I'm not a big shot, but you know, far from it. I'm actually only five feet tall, so I'm a little shot, if anything. <laughs> but I, I began speaking on panels when I was 14 years old um, at conferences for an autism organization that my mother was on the board of directors of on Long Island. And then I've been doing this professionally now since about 2006, so about 16 years at this point. And I, the only, I, I, I always like to describe it as the day before I have a presentation or a speaking engagement, I'll have like my little mini nervous breakdown and then the day of, I'm fine. Yeah. And I just, I just hate the anticipation and waiting, waiting to, to get up there and do my thing. Like I just, just let me get up there. You know, that's yeah. the only thing that I contend with. So no, I don't, I don't, I know it's a very common fear of public speaking. Yeah. A lot of people are, are afraid of that, but I, I never have. Well, like, were, you know, were, you, were you nervous yesterday before you came on the Task Talks podcast? Obviously, clearly. <laughs> <laughs> Just kidding. Yeah. No, and, and there's a difference between like nervousness and anxiousness, right? Anxiousness, usually you're prepared, but you're still like got to get up there and you got to do your stuff. And nervousness, that's usually when you're not prepared because you're worried that it's going to go bad. But I don't see that ever happening with you, Amy, since you've been doing it since you were 14, which is something I just learned. What... What did you do at 14? You're like, I need to go and advocate. I wasn't even at that point yet. You know what I mean? Because at 14, I just, I, I my self-esteem was non-existent. I was bullied all, all the time in school. Um, and I didn't really believe I had anything worth saying. And this space, you know, it was a, it was a team panel at the conference, the spring conference for this organization. It was the only place I could begin to, to speak and to try to make my voice be heard, which I couldn't do in my everyday life. Um, so it, it wasn't even a function of, I want to be an advocate because I could just barely advocate for myself, let alone anybody else. So it was, it was, I, I, I mean, it was really just the, the first steps of something that would become much larger as, as the years went on. But 
Um, it, you know, it took, it's, even though I began doing it at 14, I don't think I, I fully felt like my voice deserved to be elevated or that anybody was interested in elevating my voice until I, I was in college. So I was around 20, 22 years old, 21 years old. Um, at which point I was filmed for a documentary called Normal People Scare Me, um, which was directed by a young man on the spectrum and his mother. And it has interviews with over 65 people on the spectrum in it. And it also has a sequel called Normal People Scare Me Too, T-O-O. Um, and they took this film all around the world. They went to Qatar, they went to the Middle East, it was all these different countries and they screened it. And of all the people who were um, in it, the person who I, that I found out was asked about the most outside of the young man himself was me. I said, me, <laughs> I, I, I couldn't believe it. I was absolutely, and, and I look back and I see myself in the film and I, I, you know, I'm sitting in this big log high brown chair and I look like I'm just sinking back into it. I look so little, not, not just physically, but like in terms of my presence, it yeah. wasn't there yet. So, so I've come a long way. And, and how old were you when you did that? I was, I want to say 21 or 22. Cool. So I was just trying to figure out my life and you've already been in a documentary. Purely <laughs> by chance, purely by chance. They were out, they were from California. They were out on the East coast and they, they, they put out this to the, the organization. My mother was on the board that they were looking for people to film. So my dad drove me to a house where this filming was happening. And then I ended up in the movie. That's awesome. <laughs> that's awesome. Well, I think that's a good segue into just your life and things like that. So can you tell us a little bit, you, you know, we don't have to start from birth, but just kind of, early childhood, you know, how'd you get into this world, you know, all that type of stuff? Um, sure. Well, again, and feel free to redirect me if I'm starting too far back or, but yeah. I, so I was you know, diagnosed at the age of 11. Um, you know, back then it was Asperger's syndrome as it was 1994. And this was just when the diagnostic criteria had been added to the DSM. Um, now it would be autism level one, but it was really kind of an amazing thing that I was diagnosed being a girl and being the year that it was, um, that my that the, the child psychiatrist who diagnosed me was a student up to to recognize it, and uh, so even though I did receive a diagnosis, it didn't mean anybody knew what to do to help me. Um, and you know, I had an IEP, but an IEP is only good if it can be enforced and if people give a crap. Right. And that you know that leads us right into the school system and the parade of professionals that I found myself in front of quite frequently. Um, one of the most prominent was was my guidance counselor in elementary school, who was, I would say, one of the few people who genuinely cared and who I felt was making an effort to try to help me, even if she didn't know a lot about autism. Um, and her her office became a refuge for me. It became a safe space. And I used to be very afraid of thunderstorms and thunder, the loudness of thunder. And if the sky would just get dark, I would run out of the classroom. And so she made it so I could run to her office and, and wait there till I was able to calm down and regulate myself. And you know, that was just such a huge thing. It seems like something really small, but it was massively important. At that time, it was like someone was seeing me. And I walked through the halls at my school feeling largely invisible. So for someone to actually see me and not necessarily in a bad way, but to actually see that I existed was profound, was, was life-changing. And again, it was sort of a contrast to the school social worker who I would go to see, who had this office all the way, I remember it was all the way at the end of the hall. So I had, I had to go all the way through the school, you know, all these corridors, you know, past the all-purpose room. And then the, the pool was here on the left-hand side because we had a pool where you, we learned how to swim. And then all the way past the fifth grade classrooms, all the way at the very end was his little office. And it was, it was very isolated. And, um, you know, I, I, I feel like the guy was doing the best he could, but I 
don't think he had a clue how to help me. I don't think he knew really anything about um, about autism. That I I didn't see him a great many number of times. That was for a couple of assessments, and you know he'd hold up flashcards and all those things. That's what I remember. And um, but the main psychologist whom I saw was outside of the school. He was not part of the school district. He was part of the local university, um, and it was he who I saw kind of on a, a regular basis. My parents as well. I mean, we were in and out of all different kinds of things. I, I began to go for biofeedback around that age, around 12 years old, 13 years old. And that consisted of having electrodes glued to my head and having to move balloons over a wall on a computer screen with my brain leaps. That was biofeedback. And it was a funny thing because I remember the people around me were wearing these white coats. And now as a professional and doing the work, I often describe it as being on the other side of the lab coat. But it's because of the fact that I had those experiences that, you know, helps to inform what I'm doing now. And I think makes a difference in, in what I'm doing now and remembering what it felt like to be that kind of helpless little girl who, you know, just was doing what everybody was telling her to do and just wanted to make people around her happy. Because I think a lot of autistic people can be people pleasers. And I certainly wanted to make these adults happy for whatever reason. Hmm. And my, my parents happy. But meanwhile, I wasn't happy. Yeah. I was miserable. Yeah. <laughs> Well, it, I'm, I'm so glad you talked about a connection of one person because that's so important. Brooke and I have talked about that before, about just making that connection with students on a campus. And that person, you said it was the counselor, correct? Guidance counselor, yes. Guidance counselor took that time to, like you said, who knows if they knew what they were doing, but they knew to try to be friendly to this kid who may need some help. Um, and I'm, I'm sure that's kind of impacted you still to this day, correct? Oh, absolutely. Well, I, you know, I, I, I would... Um we set it up so that I started to meet with her at her house sometimes. And, you know, I, I, and I had a routine and I would always make an English muffin at her house and put, put jelly on it. Um, and, you know, and, and we would sit at the same table and that it was comforting that yeah. routine to be able to do that. I never had gotten to do something like that before. And uh, a few years, I think it was, I think this was after I was out of elementary school, I think this was around middle school or the beginning of high school. I wrote an essay about her for a, a contest and I, I won we won and, and she received an award and I got an award for the essay. And, and yeah, she, I mean, she's, she's since moved to Florida. I haven't seen her in, in, in a long while, but I always remember that, that she cared. I, I, I also always remember her blonde hair and she had a pink bow that she always tied in her hair. And she wore these awesome dresses that were like, you know, something out of like Laura Ingalls Wilder or something. I don't know. She just always looked immaculate. Um, and, and that, yeah, she was a safe person. And, for many children on the spectrum in school, there are not a lot of safe people. No. You know, there's plenty of adults who want to say, oh, I'm someone you can trust. I'm somebody, you know, whatever, whether it's a behavior tech or a psychologist or, or whatnot. But that's not the same thing as being able to trust somebody. Yeah. And I think we often try to force trust between autistic students and, and those in, in authority. And that's something that has to be earned and something that has to be built. Absolutely. Can you can you give us a little bit of insight into that, Amy? So when you're trying to earn somebody's trust, what are you looking for? I'm looking for someone who who sees me as a person and not just as a client, not just as a folder that you're going to put back in your filing cabinet or that you're going to save on your computer and then forget about me when I leave. Because kids know when someone's looking at them because they want to versus because they're being paid to. It's not the same thing. Um, you know, and I, I want someone who is, who is, I know is not going to judge me, who will, will listen, um, and who isn't going to think that they always have all the answers, because that's the thing too. I think 
for many professionals, mental health professionals, psychological professionals, they think they need to know all the answers all the time. Nobody has all the answers all the time. And I would much sooner respect a professional who says, I don't know, than tries to bullshit me, excuse my language. Okay. <laughs> and, and, uh, and, and, you know, try to make up some answer that doesn't really apply to my situation because they just want to say something. I, you know, that, that to me, that's not effective. That's just someone trying to pull something out when they when they don't really know right. but let's be honest with each other if i'm expected to be honest with you as the child as the client then, then i should expect you to be honest with me i agree that's a good would you would you say would you say that people who or maybe even psychologists mental health professionals tend to get the same response if they they are trying to go into this type of therapeutic relationship and fix something that is that they seem seem to think needs to be repaired um, so can you give me an example? Like, what, what do you mean? Well, I just, I think sometimes um, that we as psychologists try to come into this relationship between a, a client and the therapist or, or the, um, uh, the mental health professional, and we know what needs to be done. Mm -hmm. And so we start I don't want to say barking, but we 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 become very directive. You've got to do this. You've got to do that, mm -hmm. and that just that that particular um, characteristic seems to work uh, against the therapeutic relationship. Yes, yes. So I I totally get what you're saying, and I agree. I think there's a difference between being a go getter and being eager to want to take on the situation and try to help the people involved versus coming in and trying to just take over the situation and talk over the people who already have an existing relationship. And, and exactly, it's, you know, I mean, me, I had an endless parade of, of professionals going through my life and thinking that they knew me better than, than anybody else and trying to tell my parents who I was. And I, I don't want you to tell me who you think I am. I want you to help me figure out who I am. You know, that's, that's, that's the difference. Collaborative. It, you, you come in here and, and we, you haven't even met me for five seconds and you're going to know exactly what to do. No, you don't. <laughs> you yeah. Know, you're, yeah. 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 I, I was, uh, and we may have, uh, have them on the podcast at some point, but I heard a speaker recently at 18 years old. Uh, this person is going to be graduating soon from high school. And that one of the points that they made in this, uh, in, in this presentation was, I'm, I'm, I'm my own expert. Like I know about me. Um, and so maybe the role as the professional here is to figure out, you know, to, to listen and to get to know who that person is. I think um, there's a, and I'm, the name of the person is escaping me right now, but there's a, a BCBA um, who talks about starting with hello, you know, just starting with, let me get to know you rather than jumping into what's the function of the behavior and what antecedents and what triggers and what yeah. consequences and what setting events and motivating operations and blah, blah, blah. Like just get to know the person. I agree with that. Yes. I think that that makes a lot of sense. Absolutely. So I would, I would think you've got to also do that as you're working with people in helping them, helping people who have autism with their sexuality and with their relationships. Oh, for sure. For sure. And I have found that, um, I mean, it's, you know, I take one approach when I'm doing my consultations through ASCOT, which I've been doing Zoom consultations with 
adults on the spectrum and their parents, families, um, and also in organizations. But it's different, you know, at Rutgers, we're expected to kind of adhere to the behavior analytic model. And I'm, I mean, I'm a little green. I'll be the first to admit I'm still learning a lot of this stuff. But what, what I don't want is to feel like the, per, the person has to open up to me and tell me all their ills and troubles and woes when we've only met like twice. You know, but, but establishing rapport is important. It is, you know, getting to know each other is, is important. I mean, one of my colleagues said to me after I'd met with, with a client once, oh, I thought she would open up to you more. And I, and I said, well, why? She doesn't know me. Yeah. You know, she's, she's, she's been very friendly to me when I've seen her in the center. And, you know, she's a lovely young lady. But I sound so old saying that, God. But, <laughs> um, but you know, we're meeting one on one, and that's a whole different, you know, setting. And the the other thing was that uh, when we met that first time, there was some landscaping on going on outside the window, so it was loud. And so she got up and she went over to the window, and rather than saying, you know, you know, come sit back down, I stood up and I went over and stood at the window too, right next to her, and we still talked. You know, it didn't need to be. It didn't need to look like a traditional session. For it to be effective it didn't need to be maybe what everyone thinks you know working with autistic people should look like it, it needed to be what was right for her what would help her to feel comfortable getting to know me and and that's what it was and i think it worked so okay so you said center which center the rucker center for adult autism services okay so what do you, what kind of stuff do you do there so my official title at the rcas is as a relationship coach Okay. Um, so I work with the participants to help them with anything having to do with built making fr uh, friendships or relationships and dating, uh, sexuality. Um, I've also been working with the RCS to design a sex education curriculum for students on the spectrum. Uh, I'm pleased to announce that we had applied for a grant a few months ago uh, to create this curriculum, a $25,000 grant, and just found out that we got it. Yeah, yeah, congratulations. It's my first grant as a principal investigator, so I'm very excited. That's awesome. That's um, wonderful awesome. news. Thank you. So, so yes, so that's that's what I've been doing uh, there, there basically. And I'm, I'm, and I find also though that part of what uh, is happening is that I'm not just teaching uh, the participants in the program, I'm teaching my colleagues and my superiors and because they've never worked with an autistic colleague before. And so they, you know, it's a funny thing. You'd think for a center that is all about autism that they would know this stuff. And yet <laughs> I'm over here, like I'm literally on the verge of a meltdown and I have to explain to you why I'm feeling this way. This isn't fair. <laughs> like, it's, it's so much, it's such a big ask. And yet that's the position in which I find myself. And I'm, you know, I, like I always say, when I talk, when I give my presentations, and I talk about my sex life for a living and my traumas. I am happy to do it if if it prevents anybody else from having to go through this, or if it makes it better for the person who's coming next. Right. Do you know what I mean? So if I got to be the guinea pig here, so be it. I mean, it is a great environment. Don't get me wrong. I love my colleagues, and I've been very. I I, I so love working there. I love the participants, but that but that is a reality. It is still. I am still the other in this environment. You know, I, I may have a master's degree in ABA, but I'm not a BCBA. I'm not one of them, so to speak. And that's the whole reason why it's important for me to be there. So, so, so this is interesting because when Brooke told me about you and I started doing research and then after we all had that first introductory meeting, you're doing a lot of things that I don't know about anybody doing. I'm going to be quite honest with you. This relationship, maybe it's just maybe I don't know other people are doing it. But why is this big? Why is this such a big subject for you? Um. It was a big subject for me because in part because I've lived it. Yeah. I, I, you know, being an adult on the spectrum and having gone through my shares of heartaches and heartbreaks as I have, 
I, I know, you know how painful that is and how helpful it might have been to have some kind of guidance along the way instead of having to just figure it out as I went along. Um, and of course, you know, there are some things where experience is the greatest teacher. I can't tell, you know, the, I can't explain to you how to deal with a broken heart. The only way to learn how to deal with a broken heart is to have your heart broken, unfortunately. Right. But um, it's, I, I've always, you know, known about the lack of supports and services for adults on the spectrum. That's something that is still very much absent. Um, much of the focus on autism is still on early intervention and children. Mm-hmm. And people are just now starting to realize oh crap, autistic kids become autistic adults. Like I didn't even know that was what was yeah. going to happen. Like, <laughs> they don't just stop at 22 or whatever. <laughs> exactly. But you know, for, for all intents and purposes, it sure seems that way because you have what's called the cliff of services that many autistic people fall off of because when they age out of the system at 21, then there's nothing for, for adult services wise. Mm-hmm. And so I, I know how that, how deeply that affects so many adults on the spectrum, many of whom I'm, I'm friends and colleagues with. And when I was looking to do my master's thesis, um, which for which we needed to design and run a study using the principles of ABA, I chose to teach uh, to adult men diagnosed with autism level one how to ask someone out on a date. That's what I was looking awesome. to do. Which is a, yes, it is a very complex thing to do. Oh, um, I can only imagine. <laughs> yeah, you know, many of my classmates were doing you know systematic replications, which is where. You like replicate a study that's already been done and like look at it from a different angle or whatever. I had to kind of design mine from scratch. So I didn't have the Betty Crocker mix. This was this was eggs and butter and flour and, and Jesus, basically. Yeah. That's all it was. <laughs> you know, and 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 me doing the best I could, having no clue what I was really doing. Um, and but it was a learning experience, definitely. And it showed me how well these skills are important. We've known they were. That was 10 years ago I did my thesis. And I don't know how much progress we've really made since then. There's been some, there, there's certainly a lot more discussion of sexuality now than there was 10 years ago. But um, it, you know, to me, it's so important because people, I think when they hear the phrase sex education, they get a little freaked out and they think, oh, we're teaching people with autism how to have sex. No, we're teaching people with autism how to live life. Mm-hmm. That's what mm, this is. Yeah. It's, you know, in school, you get the basics of the biology and the anatomy and all that. What's missing is the life skills stuff. That's what trips up a lot of people on the spectrum is, is the social elements of sexuality and relationships. And quite frankly, if we had more inclusive sex education, much in the way that curb cuts wound up benefiting not just people who use wheelchairs, but people with mobility issues, people with strollers, everyone, much in that same way, an inclusive sex education curriculum would benefit everybody, autistic people and neurotypicals alike. Wow. So t- give us a give us a preview. What is what is the the sex ed <laughs> curriculum look like? Yeah, a non CEU preview. <laughs> I mean, well, we're we're still building it. You know, it's the, the thing is is that this is kind of a foundation because this is such a massive area that we know we may not be able to touch on like every single thing. So this is it, and, and it's also going to be a living document that's going to be informed by the autistic community. So we're going to be having autistic people as consultants to the project you know, informing what we're doing and building this, right? So it's not just a static document, which I think is, is really important because our knowledge of sex and sexuality is changing all the time and our knowledge of autism is changing all the time. It's exactly the reason why I don't like the word expert, you know, because nobody is really an expert in this stuff. I call myself a specialist for, yeah. for that reason. And so to, to create something, you know, in a vacuum and say, this is it, here's the curriculum, boom. That's, you know, I don't think that that would be as effective as something that can continue to evolve and we'll have more added to it as our knowledge grows. Um, but I guess, you know, for, for a, a, I mean, we're going to, I guess, start with the basics. 
you know, you know, things like hygiene, obviously, and, and pregnancy and, and um, puberty and, and, you know, like all, I mean, there's just so much like sexual orientation, gender identity, like all that stuff is going to be in there. Um, I, I can't speak to too much, you know, we're, that's still in progress and, and all that, but we're, what, what we are hoping to do once it's completed is to disseminate it to the public. So you'll be able to get your paws on it when the yeah. time comes, I promise. Well, I'd be good because we're both in Texas and we all know Texas is an abstinence only state. So oh, don't get me started. Don't get me oh, started. Oh, no, no. Please. I want you. To, like, that's, that's the whole thing that we have to deal with, right? Yeah. I mean, a lot of, I'm sure a lot of the ideas and thoughts that you guys talk about can somewhat be generalized to our our state's idea of what should be taught, right? For saying it in a nice way. So, yes, yeah, so no, no, absolutely. Well, I, I think, I mean, I'm never going to say to somebody, you know, abstinence only well it is a crock but some people choose to be abstinent whatever Mm -hmm. but it's not reality the reality we live in is that if you don't talk about sex it doesn't mean people aren't going to think about it and i I think there's an assumption about that as well when it comes to autism that if an autistic person isn't talking about or teenager or whatever isn't talking about sex then they're not interested in it and that's not so i was very shy it's hard to believe but i was very shy as a teenager and even though I didn't say much, it was like Woodstock in my brain. Yeah. It was loud. <laughs> there was so much I was curious about, so much I was interested in learning, and I had no outlet for it and no way to, to learn any of it. And so, so that information is crucial because that information is, is not only does it empower folks on the spectrum, it also helps to keep us safe. Right? We hear about, sexu- about safety a lot of the time when we, when we do talk about sexuality. If you want to keep someone safe, Give them information. Don't deny them information. Give them, give us information so we can make the same choices as our neurotypical peers, because that's what we'll need to survive and thrive in this world when you have shoveled loose the mortal coil and, and when we need to make these choices on our own. Absolutely. Absolutely. And so this curriculum, is it meant to go into public schools? I don't know yet. <laughs> like this is still, we haven't even gotten the official. Like, we're, I found this we're still out. too early, right? <laughs> yes, yeah, it's, it's way too early. I, I don't know yet. Yeah. Okay. Well, but, just health and sexual health in, in public schools usually is not always that great. You know, yeah. what kind of things would you want to include in that or remove, for instance, obviously besides abstinence only? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, that's, that's, a, that's a big one. Um, I mean, I definitely, I just, I can't even think of what I would want to exclude. I think there's just so much that's important. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, everything from from sexual orientation to gender identity to menstrual care to you know um, the emotional changes that one goes through at puberty to just just like everything. Like, I, I mean, like do, do do my boobs look normal? Because that's a common concern among young women. Uh, I mean, how to check for for cancer? Like to do the breast check? How to you know make sure you know healthcare, like for your genitals, for, for all of it, everything, just, just, it's just, we, we keep people, you know, ignorant and unaware of their bodies. And that leads to serious repercussions down the line. Bodily autonomy also should be included. Consent. We need to have consent. I want to see that discussed in schools. It's hugely missing from the conversations, how to give consent and how to receive consent. Um, Abuse needs to be covered much more robustly. What does abuse look like? Who can commit abuse? What do you do if you're, you think you're being abused? You know, all these things are so necessary. Um, so you, you, Amy, you've clearly identified this gap um, in in our practice. You know, it's not even a it's not even a research to practice gap because 
doesn't sound like the the research is even out there. It's more of a just a you know the absence of of practice. Um, so, what advice would you give to our school psychologists who, you know, let's let's not let me think about it this way. Like, I don't want these kids to have to wait to find your curriculum that may be targeted for young adults. Mm -hmm. You know, what do what do we need to be doing as school psychologists? Um, to help them get ready for these conversations post-secondary, for these experiences post-secondary? Well, there, there is a great curriculum that actually exists already called, it's from the Organization for Autism Research. It's the Sex Ed Guide for Self-Advocates. Okay. It's free and online. Um, I collaborated on it with Dr. Peter Gerhardt. We recorded the introductions to the sections and it covers all the stuff that I just mentioned. Basically, it's for people on the spectrum ages 15 and up. So um, it's a really great resource. So there have started to be a, a few things now. Um, and I would say like, you know, to, to the psychologists, like these things are starting to be out there. There are resources that are beginning to emerge. You know, use them, like don't be afraid to, to, to reach out and, and see what, what is there. Um, and, and, but first, before you can even do that, you have to recognize that that need exists. Mm. And, and it does, even if you have clients, students whom you think, are not interested in these things. It doesn't mean that that they're not, and that you know, what you what you expect from a typically developing student, the presentation of certain emotions or certain emotional responses may look different in an autistic student, but it doesn't mean that they feel those emotions any less or or any, or any less in need of these supports. Um, and start earlier than you think you need to. I always talk about you know you have to think five years ahead, ten years like. like because what's cute when someone's five is not cute when they're 15 and will get them thrown in jail when they're 25. So these things, these, the discussions of bodily autonomy um, and boundaries, those can begin in kindergarten. Like that's not something you wait to do, you know, so. Hey, looking at the website, this is great video on it that has Amy right up here. <laughs> <laughs> Who's this gentleman you're with, do you know? That, that's Peter Gerhardt, that's Dr. Gerhardt. Oh. Um, he's very well known. He's been doing sexuality and autism longer than anybody I know. Um, he's who gave me my start on, on the presentations. Uh, we started presenting together in 2013 and he would do the clinical side and I would kind of do the personal side um, of autism and sexuality. And then I, my own presentation kind of grew out of that. I began developing my own, you know, my own work um, after that. But he's, yeah, he's very well established. He's a great, great human being and a great presenter. So, That's really cool. That's awesome. And he was he was the chair of the scientific council uh, for OAR for many years, um, so he's well known to them as well. Interesting. So, when we maybe if we're assessing somebody who is on the spectrum that is doing sexually explicit behaviors of whatever age, what what should we be doing? What should like in reports, right? Because I know that is a thing you do when you went back and read through your reports and stuff like that. Mm -hmm. Kind of talk to me about that. What should we be doing? <laughs> Well, I, you know, it's, it's harder for me to say what you should be doing than what you shouldn't be doing. Okay, better because, question. What shouldn't we be doing? <laughs> um, I, you know, I didn't even realize that my, that all these reports still existed. So, you know, as I said, I, I saw any number of mental health professionals over the years, and many of them I don't even remember. But my mother, being the vigilant individual that she is, is the curator of the Amy Gravino Museum and Archives, and she has kept binders full of, of these assessments that I received and these you know, just from all these different people. And I, I the one that kind of stood out because I, I remember looking at it not too long ago, actually, maybe it was last year. Um, and it was saying, you know, 
Uh, Amy has no understanding of the intricacies of interpersonal relationships. Amy has no sense of humor. Amy is incapable of empathy. And the thing about these assessments is that I was nine years old. I was nine years old. And this person who, as I recollect from the paper, was a, 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 a master's student. I don't even think they were a PhD or a, a, a whatever. They were, they were still, you know, but whatever. They made, they made these proclamations about me and decided, you know, and, and the thing is, you know, somebody else might say that about a neurotypical nine-year-old and you could, eh, you know, whatever, they don't know my kid. But when it comes to autistic kids, we decide that where somebody is at a certain age, like the age they're diagnosed, whatever it may be, is where they're gonna be forever. That autistic kids can't grow and change. And so the way it was written, it was like this was written in stone in, mm -hmm. in a way, like this is who Amy is. Right. And it's like, you know, who are you to say who I am? Who are you to say these terrible things and speak so derisively about me? And reading it back as an adult, I mean, I, I had to laugh because one of the examples given was that I said that my my cat had died and the the, the professional said, oh, I'm, I'm sorry, your cat died. And my response was, why are, you, why are you sorry? You didn't kill her. And then they're saying that I have no sense of humor. They're <laughs> saying great. I don't understand. That's I'm clever. Like, <laughs> I'm like, what? <laughs> For a nine-year-old, that's great. <laughs> you don't understand humor, clearly. Like, are you serious right now? And it, it's just absurd. And it's, there were also there were also the reports from my school psychologist. So I, I started seeing this school psychologist when I, I believe it was in high school. Um, and I remember the guy, I can still see his face, his, you know, semi-bald head and the suspenders he wore and the white shirts and, you know. Was it Brooke? Um, <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> Just kidding. <laughs> no, I remember his name, but I'm not going to say it on air. But, um, you know, and, and yeah, some of the things he wrote were, were I, I mean, I wish I could remember them more specifically right now, but it was the same kind of idea of just, you know, oh, he made comments about my appearance. Like there were comments about about my teeth or about my, like, why is this necessary? What does this have to do? How's that relevant? <laughs> exactly. There were literal comments about my physical appearance, my height and my, like my build. It was bizarre. And I don't know if this is because I'm a girl or, or what, but it was totally inappropriate. I could say that to, uh, you know, I, I, I don't think any psychologist worth their salt or their integrity now would write stuff like that into an assessment. But if you're even thinking of writing any of that stuff down, don't. <laughs> don't. Well, because I mean, we write the reports and then we kind of pass it on to you. But that's yeah. that's a document that you hold yep. and you get to look at at some point. And it yep. may be a snapshot, but some people take that as not similar a snapshot as it's, like you said, it's set in stone. Yeah. And how does that make that like how does that make you feel when you read these things, right? Just <laughs> I mean, it's you know, because it's a, it's a it's a funny thing. I think one of the one of the reports that they commented that about me being heavy or something, I was I literally weighed 85 pounds. Like I I was a stick. Like yeah. I was not in any I, I you know, I'm I'm <laughs> I have a body type. I'm not an hourglass, unfortunately, because not all women are. I'm you know, like 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 smaller bust, a bigger waist than the normal hips. So like that is that I had that like it's called like, you know you might hear it referred to as skinny fat. So like that's even though even when I was skinny I wasn't like skinny skinny, <laughs> but like I was I was a tool like I had my arms were like toothpicks back then like I don't know how anybody could make that that kind of an assessment and given how self conscious I was at that age how like painfully self conscious I was I mean I'm glad I never read that report back then I don't I don't recall reading it back then. You know, only now, all these years later, but that would have destroyed me, I think, completely to 
to know that an adult was perceiving me that way. And the thing is, it's not just that an adult was perceiving me that way. This is an adult I'm supposed to trust. Mm. An, adult, an adult I'm supposed to be able to talk to. How could you ever expect a child to trust you when this is how, how you think of them, when this is what you think of the kids that you're supposed to be working with? How dare you? That's a betrayal all by itself, even if you never say that to the child. Yeah. My parents knew that that's what you thought of me, and that's bad enough. And then also, how's that relevant to it? eligibility? <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I, you know, that's such a good question. Yeah, I, I just think, don't know. I think you're drawing out some really important um you know, it matters. We talk to our interns, we talk to our, our graduate students, our practicum students about uh, who they're writing that report for and who's going to read that report. And sometimes that may be an attorney or a due process hearing officer or the next school district. But I think you mentioned this earlier, you know, guess what? Children with autism grow up to be adults with autism. And, mm-hmm. um, and, and so in some ways, we're writing those that information or that story um, for that child when that child uh, be- becomes becomes an adult and uh, so we've got to we've got to keep that in mind we've got to consider that and um and and engage in these processes with dignity and respect and and put that child or that student at the center of this this picture absolutely um, wow that's that's powerful amy yeah i'm sorry you had to read it in that way and you had that perception <laughs> i hope oh, thank you But I hope people who are listening to this understand that we're supposed to be taking snapshots of somebody's life and it shouldn't be, you know, how's like, I just come back to how's it relevant again. That doesn't help with anything. I'm writing a report for Amy, right? That's meant to be read by Amy eventually. I don't know. Keep it to the facts, right? (laughs) Well, the thing is, even if I never read it, you're still putting it out there into the universe. Mm-hmm. You're still mm-hmm. putting it out for, for others to read, be it might be a parents, be it other you know professionals that you're collaborating with as part of the team that works with this child. Other people are going to see that and it informs perceptions. Like you said, they're writing the story. And if this is the story that's being told, like how is that going to color the perceptions of these other professionals that are part of this team? Like, I don't think it would influence it in a positive way at all. I think it's, it could only be something negative. Um, in that light, and it, it's a condemnation of, of a child. It's like saying, this is what you are. It's written in black and white, the end. Like, that's not fair. We, we would never do that to a neurotypical child, but we do it to autistic kids all the time. So, so this is interesting because it kind of leads us into the conversation where ABA has been criticized more recently over the past few years as mm-hmm. being abusive, unethical, because it's aiming to extinguish autistic traits and normalize mm-hmm. children. What are, what are your thoughts about some of that? Well, a few years ago, I actually appeared on, uh, well, only a year ago, maybe time has no meaning anymore. I was <laughs> it on, really doesn't, Amy. <laughs> I was on a podcast called The Ultimate ABA Showdown, and the episode was about the ethical implications of treating stereotypy or stimming, as it's called. And that's a big one. That's a big one that has invited a lot of controversy. Um, and the, the format of the podcast, it, it, it's scripted and it's like a debate style podcast. So I was on the side that was against uh, treating stereotypy. And you know, when, when I've heard about so much of this controversy, I've been embroiled in, in, in a lot of it because I'm in this sort of unique, weird position of being autistic and having a master's degree in ABA. Um, I, I always think to myself that I, I got into this field, I got my degree because I saw the potential of what ABA could be. I saw that this could be something that could help people learn skills or help people learn to be self-advocates 
and, and get their needs met and things like that. I'm not saying it's the only method, certainly, but it is a method. And time and time again, I keep seeing ABA being stymied by BCBAs, by the very practitioners of the science. Because the science itself, I don't think, I, I mean, but no, I don't, I'm not saying it's perfect. Of course, you know, there's, there's things, many scientific fields have, have murky and dubious histories, especially with the treatments of, of patients and people who, you know, un underwent these treatments. And obviously that's something that needs to be reckoned with that I don't think has been reckoned with in the field of ABA. Um, but that I just keep seeing so many professionals. And I think this could be true of school psychologists as well and, and many other fields where ego gets in the way. And people keep making these, these, are these discussions about themselves instead of about the larger issues. And that's the problem. Right. This is we're talking about the bigger picture here and folks keep wanting to make want to making it about themselves again and again. I'm like, I just want to have a big T-shirt that says this is not about you because <laughs> it's it's not. This is about a much larger conversation. This is about, you know, people's lives, the lives of, of autistic individuals. This is about the future of this entire field. And, you know, again, the thing about about you know, so behavior analysis is the science, but then the applied part is the piece that you know, we have to bear in mind. And it's not just about how behavior analysis can be applied to autistic people or the people that, that many BCBAs work with. It's how does behavior analysis apply to the world at large and is it still relevant? And if we want it to continue to stay relevant, we have to have this reckoning. We have to look at these issues seriously and have real discussions about them and bring to the table you know, the people who are the stakeholders, which is autistic individuals, people who are survivors of ABA who have experienced abuse because there are folks who genuinely have experienced abuse and who, who unfortunately often tend to get drowned out by a lot of folks who, who are not, have not undergone ABA, um, but they tend to be the really loud voices on social media. And I, and I find that that tends to create you know, some, some, some issues as well because the people who actually can speak from their own experiences don't, often don't get hurt as a result. Um, but I see... I see shutting down of dialogue happening on both sides. I see, you know, it being shut down by, by a lot of autistic advocates, and I see it being shut down by a lot of BCBAs. And, and this is not the answer. Like, we have to have a conversation, and we have to be able to listen to each other, or we're, ne or ne we're never going to get anywhere. We're never going to make things better for autistic people here and now and those still to come. And that's the whole point. That's the whole aim. So... I, you know, I, it's hard for me to say that I'm, I'm pro ABA or anti ABA. I'm, I'm pro the potential that it holds to be something that can be really make a difference in people's lives. But I am against it, you know, the, the dangerous practices and I'm against the, the, you know, the, like I said, the egocentric attitudes that hold us back from really reforming the field the way it needs to be reformed. What was your intention to get your master's in that field? Like, was it just like, I want to know, have a better understanding of this world or mm. I like this world. Well, it's a funny thing because it's one of those things where when I know. And, and that I wasn't know, an accusatory question either. <laughs> I just actually want to know. <laughs> oh, no, no, no. So well, when I was picking out colleges, for example, I stepped foot on the sidewalk of this one college and I said, this is where I'm going to go to college. And I just knew. And yeah. I couldn't even explain to you why. I had already ruled out like five other colleges just because of the bathrooms alone. But I said, <laughs> this is where I'm going to college. <laughs> and then 
So in 2007, I was living in Seattle, Washington, actually, at the time. And I moved out there after I graduated college. And my mom started talking to me about grad school. And it was she who mentioned applied behavior analysis. And again, something just clicked. And I said, this is what I want to study. This is what I want to do. Like, I just, I can't explain. I, I still don't know exactly what it was. But I, I was also unaware of the controversy at the time as well. I didn't have even a full understanding of, of what ABA was, I think, at, at that point. So that began to evolve from there as well. And, and also because of being the only student in my classes who was an autistic adult, like a lot of other folks were parents who had gone back to school to help their children, or there were you know, people working in, in schools early intervention. I was the only one who wanted to work with adults. So that put me in a unique position kind of all by itself. And um, I, I, I was never fully sure what I was gonna do with my degree. Um, I, 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 like I said, I didn't sit for the BCBA exam because I didn't know if that was gonna directly apply to what I wanted to do. But um, I, I I knew that it would be helpful. You know, I, I could speak the language basically. It's kind of, I can't see myself as an interpreter. I can you know interpret the autistic speak to the BCBAs and I can interpret the BCBA speak to the autistic people. That's sort of, I found myself with a foot in each world, which is yeah. uncomfortable. <laughs> a little bit of insider knowledge on your part, right? <laughs> yeah. mm-hmm. So so how was it being in those classes? Because I'm sure they knew Amy Vervino at this point. And so- <laughs> When we're talking about and you're listening in these classes and you're like, actually, you know, or something like that, right? Because you, you have a different yeah. perspective. Like you said, you have a foot in both worlds. I mean, in the beginning, it was kind of intimidating to speak up. I definitely felt, you know, like like a, a loner in, in, in the voice of, of all the voices there. And I mean, because like my professors, you know, I, I looked up to them in a lot of ways. My my one professor in particular, we bonded because we both, it turns out we're both fans of the monkeys, the band from the 1960s. Yeah. So yeah, we like, <laughs> yeah. So we 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 bonded over that and became like very close, like right away. And then other professors, you know, it was harder. Like they were a bit more intimidating. And you know, it's it's a tough thing, you know, when you realize even even a few years later that the person that you looked up to and, and wanted to think the best of is actually not really a nice person. Ooh, and whoops, never meet your you heroes. <laughs> So, so yeah, so it was a lot of, I needed, I needed to kind of figure out what my place in this world was going to be. I didn't, I didn't really like, I think I have a much clearer picture of it now than I did, you know, when I graduated 10 years ago, the fact that I just spoke at the ABI conference in Seattle autism conference there. And I'm going to be speaking at the national convention in Boston in a few weeks on a couple of panels there. So yeah, the, the fact that I went from feeling like nobody in the field would really care what I had to say to now I'm like doing all this stuff and, you know, on a task force that was created um, to address a lot of these, these issues for better or for worse. Um, but that I've been asked to be part of these things is, is incredible to me. It's like, I still am, and feel like I'm dreaming sometimes that I am yeah. part of this. So what was your presentation you did? And two-parter, are you going to Dublin, Ireland next year? For the next big international conference. Uh, well, I think conference. isn't Dublin this year? Isn't that this year's international or, conference in September? Um, I'll look it Seattle, up while you're talking. I did, I, I did two. I did one on sexuality and, and uh, the spectrum and ABA, of course. And then I did one with Dr. Bob Ross about, um, you know, neurodiversity, well, yeah, kind of neurodiversity in ABA and how to have discussions about the controversies around ABA, especially in the context of social media and how to just have these discussions in general, though, of course. So it was kind of like we were we were modeling this for the for the audience and um, you know trying to broach these subjects because this has obviously been like you said really building up over the last few years especially so um, that's going to be on YouTube actually that I don't think it's been posted yet 
but it's supposed to be uploaded there. And, and since the conference, I've had people saying to me again and again that my presentations were the best ones of the conference, not to toot my own horn. Yeah. But, <laughs> so. Well, I think, and just saying, yes, yes, it is in Dublin, Ireland this year, September 1st through 3rd. But, but I think you also talk about t topics that usually aren't talked about. And also you have a different perspective than like Brooke and I getting up there and having that conversation, right? <laughs> you know, and, and Brooke and I have always told each other, we, we're not good presenters, we're good talkers and moderators, but, you know, but still like you do have that different perspective when you get up there and you have these conversations. Thank you. Yeah, I think that that's important. I think it does give me, I don't know if an edge is the right phrase, but it gives me something mm -hmm. that kind of stands out among the other folks. And like I said, I love my quote experts, like the people who are clinicians and who present on this stuff, but yeah, they can't speak to it from the perspective that I can, I think. And that does, people are often reached and touched by a personal firsthand perspective. Um, so I think that does make, make a difference in a lot of ways. Of course, of course. Go ahead, Brooke. I was just gonna say, if you, Amy, if you need, if you need help naming chapters in your book, you let us know. <laughs> <laughs> that is our niche. Don't you worry about that. We will take care of that stuff. <laughs> um, okay, I think I think I have them all named, but I'll let you. Know. Oh, okay, all right. Well, you don't need us then. <laughs> I so I do have a question about a project that you are a part of. Um, it's not something that's kind of what we talked about, but in a different key. I think that's a very interesting project, right? And can you tell us a little bit of background about that? And it's kind of we're getting towards the end of our episode, but I wanted to make sure I highlighted this since this is a more recent thing, correct? Yes, yes. Well, so it was originally a book in a different key, the story of autism was written by John Donovan and Karen Zucker. Um, it was a Pulitzer Prize finalist and it chronicles the story of the first person ever diagnosed with autism, which was Donald Triplett and he's still alive mm -hmm. and they wanted to make it into a movie. Um, so a few years ago, um, John reached out to me. I, I had met him previously. I can't really remember how, but it feels like I've done him forever. But he reached out to me and asked if I wanted to be interviewed for the movie. Um, so I, I said yes. And uh, again, me and Peter Gerhardt, we, we were filmed, both filmed for it. And I was filmed giving a presentation uh, with with him at the Epic School, where he's the executive director here in New Jersey. Um, so, so yeah, and then I was interviewed on my own as well for it. And uh, it's been making the rounds at film festivals and getting really positive reviews and, and uh, results. Um, and later this year, uh, it's it's actually going to be widely released on PBS, so it'll be available to the whole country, hopefully, and beyond uh, by 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 then, by December. So, I watched the trailer, and it's absolutely awesome, and it's great, you know. And just to kind mm -hmm. of see him still going, and and mm -hmm. everybody in the community around him is fantastic, yes, yes. right? <laughs> well, it it does. Yes, it shows the wonderful community around Donald, but also the fact that he was. He was he experienced so many forms of privilege that allowed him to live the life that he has lived and it highlights other families and other people on the spectrum who have not had those privileges and what a difference that that makes and the film also parallels uh with karen's son mickey who is also autistic and so it kind of parallels their stories but while also interviewing many other uh, people on the spectrum but it it really covers a, a large breadth of the spectrum um you know all too often many projects in the media will only focus on a certain segment of this, I mean, segment is the wrong phrase, but they'll kind of show folks who have more minimal support needs. And in a different key shows, shows people with higher support needs, people with minimal support needs and everything in between. So it really covers, I think as much of the spectrum as you can in the length of, of film, which you can only you know, really cover so much anyway, but it's a great film, definitely. That's great. I'm very excited to see it. I'm very excited to see it in its entirety. So Amy, you'll have to send me an email whenever it's like going to be shown. 
right? Absolutely. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, all right. So we always try to finish up our episodes with some fun, rapid questions. They're usually not relevant to anything we talked about, but they're just so we can get some more about you personal life, right? Even though we've already talked about your personal life more than we've talked about other people's personal lives on this podcast. So coffee, tea, or neither? Tea. Tea. What do you drink? Uh, it depends. Sometimes I like a nice chai. Sometimes I, li- I like Lapsang Souchong, which is a black tea. Um, and sometimes I like jasmine tea. So it, it depends. Uh, so we're from Texas and the only type of tea down here is sweet tea. So it's <laughs> right. not like any of those. That should be illegal. <laughs> <laughs> what's, your, uh, what's your favorite day of the week? Oh, oh, goodness. That's a tough one. Well, I was born on a Wednesday, but Wednesdays are kind of tough because they're in the middle of the week. I guess... Fridays can be good, you know, because the weekend is, is approaching. Um, mm. So I guess I'll go with Fridays. That sounds good. What's your biggest fear? Like an actual, like physical fear. <laughs> what do you mean by physical? So like, like deep water for me, deep water horrifies oh. me. It is embarrassing to say that as a Hawaiian, but deep water is very scary for me, mostly because I don't know what's down there. I feel like we haven't seen everything. Mm. I'm at a complete disadvantage down there. So there's no way I'm getting away from anything. Even the smallest <laughs> fish catches up to me. It's just, and then especially if it's clear water, it's going to be a whole thing, Amy. I'm going to go ahead and stop on the head, but. <laughs> well, I mean, my biggest fears are emotional ones, not physical uh, ones okay. by okay. far. But if I had to pick a physical one, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm not crazy about like, I don't know how people jump out of airplanes. I think that's insane. Mm, yeah. <laughs> so, why? Yep. why? Gravity is a thing for a reason. Let's stay on the floor, guys. Exactly. Yes. That's right. Be <laughs> on the ground. People. I'll exactly. skip that one. I'll skip that one. <laughs> um what was your first job i well i i don't know if it even really counts but i kind of was a file clerk in an in, in, uh, uh osteopedic doctor's office uh, you know orthopedic doctor like bone doctor office yeah. um in, when i was in college nothing exciting yeah. so none of us were it's okay brooke once almost burnt down a golf course so you know, <laughs> yeah that's, that was exciting though <laughs> that's exciting. all right so you are a traveling speaker what's the what's your favorite place you've been to I, I, I mean, I got to go to Paris a few years ago, which was, which was gorgeous. I mean, it's Paris, you know, yeah. unfortunately I had terrible jet lag the whole time. I don't think I ever got a decent night's sleep, but I mean, I, you know, I, I love to cook. So for me, Paris was just incredible. Um, but I've also been in Cabo San Lucas. I did a presentation there in Mexico Ooh. and, and that was beautiful too. Um, although I'm too cerebral to just lay by the pool and, and, and do nothing. I can't, I can't, <laughs> I can't turn my brain off. So I don't know how people do that, but some people have that ability. Not me either. <laughs> All right. What's your biggest? <laughs> oh, I can. You can, Brooke? Oh, yeah. 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 All right. So maybe we're just not there yet. <laughs> what's your biggest pet peeve? Oh, goodness. Oh, boy. Um, <laughs> uh, slow drivers um, and. Oh, and and pantyhose. I don't like pantyhose. <laughs> oh yes, the old the old double threat. Slow driver. They're very itchy. I can. Yeah. I like fishnets. I can wear fishnets, but not regular pantyhose. Fair enough. All right. What is a? I added this one as we were talking. What is a recent movie suggestion that you would recommend? You know, I I find myself in this place where I keep watching the same things because they're comforting, and yeah. I haven't really watched a lot of new things. Okay, so what's a comfort movie for you then? How about that? Oh, oh that's a good question. That's a great question. Um, well, Lord of the Rings definitely. I mm-hmm. love the second one, especially the Two Towers, is very comforting for me. Also, obviously, the director's cut. You're going to lock in for twelve hours, and we'll be good to go, mm-hmm. right? <laughs> well, I haven't seen the director's cut one, but oh, okay. But also, the Fugitive. I love the Fugitive. It's 
always suspenseful, even though I've seen it a zillion times. It's just so well done. Yeah. Um, I really enjoy it. <laughs> oh, those are great movies. You that is a me? good movie. Yeah. yeah. I just recently saw Everything Everywhere All at Once, which is a phenomenal film mm-hmm. by the Adam, the Daniel brothers, the Daniels. Um, oh with Michelle Yao, it is great. It is probably the best multiverse movie of the year. Sorry, Dr. Strange. Uh, <laughs> but you should totally watch that if you like offbeat movies. Um, all right. One more question, Amy. Okay. Is it wrong for a vegetarian to eat animal crackers? Well, I, I actually am a vegetarian, so that's an interesting question. <laughs> so <do> you, <laughs> oh, good. Straight from your mouth. What do we got? <laughs> Those are not real animals. They're crackers, <laughs> for God's sake. <laughs> Oh, Amy, we have loved hanging out with you today. Is there anything you want to plug before we kind of say goodbye to our people? Yes. So if people want to find me online, uh, you can visit my website at, at uh, amygravino.com. I'm also on Twitter uh, at Amy Gravino and Instagram at amy.gravino. And I'm on LinkedIn as well if you, if you want to find me on there. And feel free to reach out. Absolutely. And we have all of those in our descriptor too. So if you need to look at those, they're all right there. Brooke, any last words? Uh, I'm up for traveling and for being a companion to help Amy, uh, you know, carry your bags, carry, carry the bags. Um, you know, I can shoe people away from her if, oh, yeah. uh, if you know, if there's people that. that are bothering her in Cabo San Lucas or Mazatlan or, or we wherever. flyers. <laughs> we're good, we're good oh, on the you. beat people, right? You just mm-hmm. send Brooke and I to places. We're very conversational, so it'd be very easy for us. We'll take care of all that stuff for you, Amy. <laughs> well, I'm coming to Oklahoma next month, so. Oh, Brooke, <laughs> just go straight up. <laughs> That's close. That's that is close. close to Brooke. Where are you going to be in Oklahoma? Uh, in Oklahoma City. Uh, it's a it's a conference for OU, but they're having it at a hotel, not at the campus. So. All right. Interesting. All right. All right. And all right. what are you going to be talking about? autism and sexuality all right what else (laughs) what else well i hope you find uh receptive ears uh in oklahoma thank you very much i hope so too yeah and for i know you have plenty of other things to listen to but you give us your time and we really do appreciate that remember to follow our official task facebook and instagram accounts at txasp where you can get all the up-to-date information on what's going on in our field and what the board is currently up to you can also email us at podcast at txasp.org if you have any questions you want us to answer comments corrective feedback or negativity we'll take it all and remember if you want us to keep doing this you have to go give us five stars and leave a review on all of your podcasts that you listen to rate us please we need the ratings and remember make good choices